Welcome to the American Society of Regional Anesthesia, Regional Anesthesia and Pain Podcast, ASRA Rap. Hey there, everybody. This is Raj Gupta from Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm coming to you today to just introduce quickly the second part of our Facebook Live recording from the ASRA Fall Pain Meeting in San Antonio, Texas. We had a great meeting in San Antonio, and uh, Gary Schwartz and I hosted a second episode of the Facebook live stream. It seemed to be very popular on the first day, so we thought we'd rebroadcast the audio from that so you guys can listen to it if you weren't able to catch it online. By the way, we are going to post the video from the Facebook live stream on Azra's YouTube page, and it's still available on Azra's Facebook page, so if you want to see those videos, you can see those there. Before I get to the audio for the Facebook Live, I do want to remind you to go to azra.com and check out all the details about the upcoming Azra Spring Meeting in 2019. That's April 11th through the 13th, 2019 in Caesars Palace, Las Vegas. We'd love to have you come. This is the Regional Anesthesia and Acute Pain Meeting. We want to see all of you guys there. It's going to be a fantastic meeting. And then you can come and join us on the Facebook Live yourself and see what it's like on the other side of the camera. So without further ado, let's get back to the live stream from Facebook Live at the ASRA Fall 2018 meeting in San Antonio, Texas. Here we go. Well, hello, this is uh, Raj Gupta and Gary Schwartz. We're back to you live from the ASRA meeting in San Antonio. This is the fall pain meeting. We want to welcome you back on Facebook Live and all of you guys that have joined us yesterday. We had, I think, over 700 views for yesterday's live stream. So that's Which is pretty that's impressive. Fantastic. That's great. And, you know, yesterday a lot of people were sending in questions and stuff, and we were answering them back. So if you put your questions and comments on uh, in the comment board, then you, we will see those try to answer them live or we'll answer them in text and so make sure you jump in let us know you're watching let us know where you're uh, watching from we'd love to see that as well yeah, we're also streaming live on instagram at pain doc ny to try something new if anyone's following on yeah, there shoot your questions fix, let's fix your video here on instagram so we can see everybody here all right good now we can see everybody there, Dr. Too. Gupta is our technological guru over here, so it's the second day of a meeting. Uh, any interesting things that you've thought in the meeting well, so far? Well, before we talk about this meeting, I want to talk about next meeting. So we're always going to be thinking ahead. So in the spring, April, we've got April 11th through the 13th, 2019, we're having our spring ASRA meeting. That's going to be in Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, Nevada. This is the regional anesthesia and acute pain meeting. We want all of you guys to come. It's going to be a fantastic meeting. We put together an excellent program of speakers, uh, interactive sessions, workshops, all the stuff you love. It's going to have a fantastic exhibit hall. Uh, and it's at Caesars Palace. There's going to be a lot of fun stuff to do at Caesars Palace, too. Roger's the committee chair, so he knows about it intimately. I, I know a few things about the meeting, yeah. Any so, specific dates people have to remember that are watching so right on Instagram now, or Facebook? Right now is a really important date. So right now, the abstract submissions uh, are open. And um, so you can submit abstracts uh, on azure.com right now. It's open uh, today. And then it stays open until January 7th. So it seems like a far off way, but it's right around the corner. And so you might as well just go ahead and get it done now. And that way you don't forget about it and you don't procrastinate. Um, and we're already getting like some of the fastest uh, number of abstract submissions that we've ever had. So make sure you're a part of that. Don't miss that opportunity. So we want your research. We want your interesting case reports. If you have different medication, neuromodulation, 
all different things submitted. It's a great meeting to see all these things. You get to right. meet with all these live experts who come actually to these moderated poster services poster sessions, you could ask them questions, they could ask you. It's a really fabulous experience for a... Uh, you know, something we are doing different that we didn't, we didn't mention last time is that in the spring meeting, we're going to have, we have our moderated poster sessions, which we've always had, but I think some of the e-poster folks got, felt left out. So we're actually going to have several of our faculty roaming the e-poster time sessions. And they're not fully moderated, but to help engage with the presenters, because I think that people put a lot of work into those posters. They'd like to talk to somebody about it and share their work. So we're going to try to engage with those people more uh, at this coming meeting and make sure that their work is respected and appreciated. I think it's very valuable. People do the work and it just gives people new ideas, gives new research opportunities, and helps us learn. Yeah, you can come on. So, we, so what we're doing now is we're at the exhibit hall. We're talking about the fall meeting at, uh, in San Antonio. And uh, we had a lot of great sessions today from all over uh, different topics about pain medicine. You know, I'm not a pain physician, uh, chronic pain physician myself like you are, but I felt like a lot of the material still applied to us uh, as acute pain physicians, as regional analysts, uh, as people who are doing multimodal analgesia. Tell me a little bit about what struck out to you today. So struck out today was uh, the first session of the day was uh, by our colleague uh, Ed Mariano and his group was talking about the how do we could prevent chronic acute pain becoming chronic pain and also could we decrease the cost of knee arthroplasties and what we could do for patients. The biggest shocking that I found out of the first lecture was that one third of patients are unhappy after they have a knee replacement. Yeah, that's and really shocking. I mean, that's a lot of investment and then to be unhappy either because of pain or maybe not improved quality of life. So there's over 700,000 knee replacements a year done in this country and the population's yeah. getting older. Every year we've seen an increase in the amount of number of these knee arthroplasties so that a couple hundred thousand of them are not happy. Right. Is a huge number. Also 40% of these people had chronic pain after the surgery at six months and 11% had new neuropathic pain. Yeah, that's, that's really distressing because now you're introducing something that they didn't even have in the first place. So the questions that I kept, that kept coming to my mind were, um, is, it, is there a variation in how the surgeries are performed, both the surgical uh, aspects technically, but also the perioperative management of their physical therapy, their pain management, expectation management? Um, is that the difference? Or is there a difference in patient selection? Are we choosing uh, patients to succeed in certain situations, but patients that maybe shouldn't have had surgery at all? I think How that, do was we know? One, that was one of the big takeaways. I think is uh, obviously the, the pre-op pre area from the surgeon, the anesthesiologist, the pain physician is expectations of the patient. There was an interesting story today that one of the lead panelists was spoke about. It was a 70-something-year-old man scheduled for a knee replacement, and they like to ask him, what do you expect to get out of the surgery? And right. he was a high school or college umpire, and that was his favorite thing to do. And he shows up to get his knee arthroplasty, and they told him the day of surgery, you cannot be an umpire anymore. You cannot get down in the squat position to umpire games. And then he decided on the day of surgery, I don't want this knee arthroplasty. I'll wow. deal with the pain. That should have been addressed long before. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of us need to think about how do we, um, as perioperative physicians, because that's what we're becoming. We're not just intraoperative anesthesiologists. We're not just clinicians in a pain clinic. We are, as a group, turning into perioperative physicians. As a group of perioperative physicians, what are we doing to help delineate this information to these patients? And if they are going to go ahead with surgery, how do we move them towards surgery with better preparation, both mentally but also physically? 
So that was but the other takeaway from that morning uh, lecture I found was interesting was the different techniques of radio free radio frequency ablation. Come on. Let Kevin finish eating first. Oh, he's got to yeah. chew his food. Okay. But radio frequency yeah. ablation for these different peripheral nerves, genicular nerves of the, the knee, femoral and obturator of the hip, suprascapular and axillary of the shoulder. So maybe we could prevent people from having arthroplasty or help these 30% of people that are unsatisfied or dissatisfied after the surgery yeah. to regain function, improve their quality of life. So there's a lot more different new interventional techniques that have lower side effect profiles that might benefit these patients. Do you find that you're seeing a lot of these patients in clinic after surgery? I do see a lot. I, yeah. I, I me, myself, and my partners perform a lot of genicular nerve, nerve blocks, genicular radio frequency ablations. Yeah. Our surgeons send us a lot of post-shoulder arthroplasty, post-even shoulder arthroscopy that have pain, they have decreased mobility, they cannot do their physical therapy. So we've been doing these blocks. We're starting to implement more of the radio frequency to give them longer relief, six to 12 months. What do you think of would have happened to these people if they had come to you before they had surgery? Well, maybe could if you have done block, the same blocks? Maybe we could have done the blocks before. You know, it might not have prevented the surgery, but maybe could have prehabbed them to get more range of motion, more quality yeah. of life. Maybe some people would have prevented to have the surgical procedure in the first place, right. which right. we want function. I, I think zero pain is a, a lofty goal. It would be great, but I, I don't think everyone's going to get zero pain. Right. But if you could have it controlled, and be able to function. I think that is the most important thing. Sure. Yeah, and I, um, I, I think that's uh, with the number of joint replacements we do in this country, um, and probably worldwide now, it's starting to increase. Um, we, we do have to consider like what is the best way to handle these patients. Um, it's an expensive surgery, both in money, but also in time and effort and um, pain and potential harm to our, our patients. And so and we need to be thinking about that. With the advent of uh, 3D printing. I'm I saw that. Yeah, that was. Tell me about that a little bit. So there was an article. I, I I forgot the name of the company. I'll have to get back to that. But they are 3D printing custom knees for patients. Because right now it's like standard sizes. They measure interop and they try to make the I'm material. Trying to get Kelly here. We're getting. So how are you, Kelly? Good to see you. Good to see you. So Kelly, go here. Hi everyone. So Kelly is, uh, you know, uh, you probably have. If you guys have watched the Facebook Live in the last few years, you see Kelly come up and talk and you think that she's like a world-renowned expert already. <laughs> Not and, at all. And, and she's just getting started. She's so still a resident. Now? I am at Mass General. I'm That's a right. CA2. I'm actually on cardiac. They CA2. let me out for wow. two days to come visit Azra. And she was doing this stuff when she was a med student, making us all look like we were barely catching up to her. Yeah. Well, you can see my five-year ribbon this time. She's so getting, I'm finally five her, years. Her badge is getting longer and longer. It's impressive. It's a, I didn't put cowgirl on it though. <laughs> they had that as an option. I felt like that requires different criteria that I have not met. Well, maybe we'll <laughs> see. We'll see. So, um, we were just talking about knee replacements, and there was a lot of conversation about um, uh, chronic pain development after knee replacements and stuff. But Certainly. you know, you've been doing some other stuff during the meeting. You, you, you're involved in some of the special interest groups here. Yes. So tell, tell me about one of those. So. As a resident, I got involved in the resident section committee, but I also came to ASRA when I was presenting my research before I had finished medical school, right. as you mentioned. And then I went back to medical school and realized that we don't have great pain education across the board. And while there were a few lectures, they were not up to date, they didn't answer most people's questions, and yet all of us as 
Evans Force were writing down feverishly everything they could remember from the talk. Like, this is how I'm going to practice. This is how I prescribe opioids. And I think there's been a lot of change in that over the years with the problems with opioids becoming more popular and well uh, more aware in the public. But what I wanted to do was create something that would help normalize or um, build a curriculum for pain for medical students and residents that aren't necessarily going into anesthesia. Those of us in anesthesia get good training, but that's not true for people in other specialties or and in every med school. And we're not often the ones prescribing the medications, right? So Correct. We're not the first the ones seeing them. Are given by other specialties to these patients, both right. in medicine and surgery. Right, certainly. I don't know what your experiences were in med school with pain training. Oh, we had our two-hour lecture. So Barely was, any. Now yeah. that it's become like this opiate epidemic, crisis, however you want to look at it, the pendulum swinging back the other way, I think it's people are more aware of it. Again, we spoke yesterday on the this live session about Rick Tucker, the DEA agent, if some doctors are getting investigated. So I think people are looking more and more about that. And just to, anything else about your SIG that you find interesting? Yeah, so... so which, which special interest group are you Right. So I created the resident and medical student pain education SIG. Right. There are other educational SIGs. We all want to teach everyone, right, right. which is great. But our goal is to teach medical students and residents that aren't necessarily going into pain and allow our ASRA members and SIG members to create content that then we could share and have resident liaisons to special interest groups in medical school. A lot of people don't know about ASRA unless someone introduces them to it. And there's a lot of good content and opportunity for growth and leadership. So our group is, is trying to do that. Meeting? This is our third meeting. Third meeting. Our third meeting. We're just over a year old now wow. as a SIG. How many We're members growing. do you guys have in the group? On the website, 700. How many people come to the meetings and participate? Not as many as we'd like. So if you want to be a leader, you want to well, submit things, please Do you know how many times we had the question, how do I get involved in ASRA? Well, you sign up for Kelly's uh, SIG, and then you say, hey, I'll do something. Yes. And then automatically, you're part of ASRA. Right, and exactly. And you're doing something. That's all it takes. Often, and as, as she mentioned, a lot of people want to do something, but very few take that next step of actually executing on it. And if you just execute a little bit, a lot of opportunities Definitely. come out of that. It just takes some effort and time, yeah. a little bit of extra work from your normal workflow, and uh, we take all volunteers. There's a lot of opportunity for leadership, getting on different SIGs, committees. If you don't get it the first time, you know, you can keep on applying. We accept all volunteers. It's all to further the education and research of pain management. I think that's what we're looking I'm gonna, for. Definitely. I'm going to grab Heather here, too, because she's on the same thing, but from the nurse practitioner side. That would be great. Okay. Any interesting lectures that you saw today, Kelly, that you want to talk about? So I was creeping on the ketamine talk. I was actually in a neighboring talk, but I was loving the tweets coming out of ASRA to learn more about ketamine. We have uh, Heather Jackson over here yes. from so Vanderbilt. Heather, yes. Heather's from my neck of the woods yes. in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt. Yes. She's a nurse practitioner with our pain clinic and um, she has been really uh, motivated and uh, energetic about getting a, a more prominent role with the nurse practitioners yes. in ASRA. Yes. Um, similar to what Kelly is talking about and I don't know if you guys have even met each other no, yet. So. So. Nice, nice to meet you. Yeah. Hey, Kelly, great to meet you Heather, Kelly. Yes. Heather, nice Kelly. So I've seen you on social media. So, <laughs> so, Kelly, Kelly's a CA2 resident and she's been doing more than any of us have since no. she's uh, uh, early in her medical school career. Oh, and so she started the resident medical student special interest group which is 
in my mind, very parallel to what you've been talking about with the nurse practitioner special interest group and the yes. PA special interest group, yes. which is there are a group of people who um, both need education and want to contribute education and contribute material to this community. Um, and, um, and we're trying to uh, make sure that we're uh, uh, involving everybody that's active in this group to, yeah. to make sure that we're... Uh, Getting everybody's voices heard. Yeah. Right. So yes. t- tell me a little bit about your nurse practitioner and PA sick that you guys. Yes. You, um, yes. So we actually have it started up, and I think it's a great first step. And it sounds like Kelly, we might be on the right track. So seeing the end product is excellent. But we we have our SIG up and running, and we encourage everyone to get on board. We're trying to get the word out about the social media team, and now we have um, a nurse practitioner on the social media team this time, which is me. So we'll have everybody following us. Yeah. Yes. 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 So we're we're getting in there. We're making our presence known, and yeah, trying to to get more people involved. We're gonna get Amy in here too. Yes. Come on, Amy. Speaking of of diversity in ASRA. Yes. Speaking of diversity in ASRA and different SIGs, we have another wonderful guest who's part of the social media team, Amy Pearson from the University of Iowa. She recently finished over at Mayo. Now she's helping run the resident education, and she is a member of the Women in Rapham SIG, which hopefully can give us a little update about that. Yeah, so um, the Women in Rapham SIG is a new SIG as of last year, and it's headed by Andrea Nickel and Tina Doshi, two fabulous pain physicians. And I'm really excited for what they're going to bring to ASRA, and it's one of the bigger SIGs. I think they have 176 people in it. Um, and I'm the next president of Women in Anesthesiology, so we are going to all work together and really bring uh, Women in Rapham uh, up and coming. So. So actually, Amy, I'm so glad I have you here to ask that question because I've seen that advertised and I've been very intrigued about it. Is it open to nurse practitioners, the PAs, and nurses yeah. as well? Um, right now, we're pretty much um, sticking with women in anesthesiology just to help um, with issues specific to um, anesthesiology. Okay. Um, but we're very supportive of um, anybody who is uh, really working in anesthesiology. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah, so what we're trying to see is, um, so one thing that's been interesting about the special interest groups across the board is that we found out that there's these motivated groups of people that have not felt like a way to get into the organization. This is true with a lot of societies. Yeah. They have the same problem. You have an energetic group, but they don't know their way in. Yeah. And, and uh, like we were just talking about with Kelly, is that a lot of people come up to us and say, um, how do I get involved, right? right? How do I get included? How do I get to be part of the club? And well, this is this is how all of these people have done it. Is we have a system to create your own when it's not there, or get involved in something that is there, and then we start collaborating between them. So even if one special interest group is doing something, another can learn from that. We build a product off of that, or join forces for a special project, even though everything doesn't overlap. Yeah. And I think that's a great way to kind of move the society forward. Definitely. One of the things I was going to say is when I came as a graduate student, there was not a true role for a graduate student at ASRA. But ASRA was so welcoming and open to suggestions about changes and how to get more trainees involved and things that we wanted to do. And then talking about SIG to SIG, one of the things that we unveiled today at our third SIG meeting is that we finally have completed our first module of education on pain pathways and as part of that we created well at 11 o'clock last night I created a (laughs) webcast uh, which is a seven minute slideshow animated uh, narrated 
summary of our pain pathways module of teaching and we're hoping that can be shared with other states, shared with medical students, um, maybe it'll leak to YouTube, we'll, we'll see, yeah. uh, and try and just get good information about pain education out there and work yeah. together. That's one of the best things about the society that I've seen. It's, it's, it's diverse, it's inclusive, and if people don't find what they're looking for at first, or they feel like something is lacking, like the Women Regional Anesthesia and Pain Management, like the Nurse Practitioner Section, like education for medical students and residents, they allow you to form it. Send it to the board, yeah. send your idea. They might not accept it the first time, but a lot of good ideas they do. It's a very diverse, eclectic, inclusive. The whole goal, again, is for research, education, patient safety. So yeah. if you feel like you're underrepresented by any of these issues right now, people form their own SIGs, as you see from the three people standing beside Rods yeah. and I. So, oh yeah, and just just to clarify, the women in Rapham is totally different. So I, I don't oh, see why okay. that would not be inclusive of all um, ASRA members. Yes. So sorry, yes. that's okay. No, I appreciate so, that. <laughs> so you guys have been at different parts of the meeting. So is there anything that struck you in the last two days that is um, either useful or enlightening about your practice? Something that's different that you guys have seen at the at the lectures, workshops? So ours is just now starting tomorrow, um, okay. our MPPA program, but I have to say already, I really like how there's a lot of these events. Like right now, we've got people meeting over here. I brought a whole team of nurse yeah. practitioners and they saw that we were having a meet and greet and they wanted to get in there and they walk up and they're welcomed and they've got a gift and all. it just seems so much warmer even at this meeting compared to previous meetings. Yeah. Any interesting lectures you guys wanted to spoke about? I know there was a, you spoke, you went to the one in a, the different diverse nature of how women and men yeah, react so, to pain or so have different process Yeah, so I went to a lecture with, um, Andrew, Andrew Nichol. Nichol was presenting a lecture on the sex differences in pain perception. And, um, you know, there's this, this uh, sort of mythology about women have more pain than men do. Um, and so she was actually talking about, is there any science on that? And actually, there seems to be some relationship with hormonal balances and whether people, women, perceive uh, pain differently. And um, that's blended in with uh, cultural and uh, sort of societal expectations that are different between men and women about how they handle adversity and what's expected, even from young children, how we train boys and girls to handle difficult situations in different ways. Um, so, you know, which part is which, it's hard to know. Um, the, the most fascinating one, she said there's one paper she found where they were giving a case report of uh, a transgender woman who became uh, a man and um, after receiving testosterone therapy, her chronic, his chronic pain became much less. Oh, wow. And, and I mean, that's one situation, hard to know was you that know, because that it means. was from the testosterone or possibly because now they feel more comfortable right. in their new role? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, but they weren't. They presumably, I don't know how they were raised, yeah. right? So I don't know if that's a societal change, if that's the way they were raised, if that's a uh, hormonal change. But there is something fascinating about the, the variation that people experience. And what was, uh, I thought, most interesting about that was until we figure that out, we don't understand why men and women are treated differently in the medical system, and a one-size-fits-all treatment for all patients is not going to be appropriate. And so, um, you know, the, the implicit bias, um, <laughs> that was another fascinating slide she had, where they actually did these virtual humans, they send them to different practitioners, like a, a, a virtual case report, but it had a visual of the person, and it would be 
a white man or a black man and a white woman and a black woman and then they each had a case to go with them to description and they asked what would they prescribe, how would they handle them, all that kind of stuff. And without going into the specifics, there was variation depending on who the provider is, their own characteristics, as well as how it matched up to the characteristics of the patient. So like women treated women differently than they treated men and men treated women differently than they treated men. And then there was a little bit of difference with race, but not as much. And then there was a bigger difference. Um, there was also a difference between younger practitioners and older practitioners too, in how they treated the same. Wow. I mean, there was a lot of little permutations and combinations. But I found it fascinating that, I mean, we've got to dig into ourselves, look into ourselves, and kind of see some of these uh, uh, differences and, and biases that we have. Yeah, because theoretically, everyone with the same case report should be treated the yeah, same. But they're not. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We know that yeah. for a fact. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> like a, any other interesting lecture. Did anyone go to the ketamine lecture? I thought that anyone? I, I missed that. I was fine. Yeah. Right. I've been Raj tweeting like crazy, place. trying to keep everybody up to yeah, speed. Yeah, I know. So. The, tw the Twitter's out there. Very helpful. Yeah, so the ketamine lecture I found was very interesting. People are using it now for to, for chronic pain after large surgeries, for headaches, migraines. People are using low-dose infusions. And I think the biggest takeaway, they're still doing more research, but it does help for headaches. It does help for to get through the chronic pain period. It does not always help long-term effects. Right. But one thing I found interesting is that there are some rare complications of it. You can get a little bump in your LFTs that normally, your living function test, that normally resume once the infusion is stopped. So they recommended to get LFTs before you run an infusion. It seems safer if you don't make large changes to the infusion and safety protocol. I know that Raj uses at his yeah. institution. And yeah. the other thing that we've seen in my institution, I believe Max, who's the chair of this meeting, mentioned one to five percent of patients is people who abuse ketamine on the outside, not so much from the infusion by a medical practitioner, could present with hematoria or what they call a ketamine cystitis that may necessi right. necessitate surgery. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I but certainly didn't know about that before. We've started seeing it. Uh, we have a small subset of population who abuses it. And they came in. We started seeing our first two cases over the past couple of months. It does wow. resolve. It's something that we didn't see beforehand. As, as ketamine is coming, it's an older drug. It's cheap. It's readily available. They import it from China, I believe. And it can come in high concentration. So we might be seeing that more. But there's a lot of new utilizations for it. I don't know what you guys think about right. this. I, one thing that really struck me about the ketamine lecture was the fact that oftentimes we see that clinicians are worried about uh, giving ketamine to people who have a history of psychiatric conditions or a history of addiction or questionable opioid-seeking behavior because there's a concern that with this psychoactive drug that they'll either have a bad experience, like a PTSD flashback, or that they'll have a craving for it after the fact. And I think that some of the more recent data has shown that this is actually a population that benefits from ketamine. And while that may not be the intention during the hospital stay where we're using it to treat acute pain post-operatively or even in the ORs to try and do more multimodal, it certainly doesn't appear that it's harming this population or that they're an increased risk of those things. Anecdotally, that's true, but it was nice to see it in the One data. thing that was very obvious is, is dose matters. So yeah. different dosing strategies affect a lot of these side effects quite a bit. Really low doses, you probably don't see much of anything. Short durations, you probably don't see much of anything. But you increase the dose, you increase the duration. And some of these therapeutic 
regimens do require an escalating dose, boluses, and that's when you start seeing some of these side effects. We've got another person I just want to change, uh, change roles over here. So as we started a new thing at this meeting is we have a mentor and mentee. So Sean is my mentee. It's his first meeting. He is an anesthesia resident who is a CA1. A, a CA1 from the University of Washington, yeah. T, Seattle. He worked hard in the OR yesterday, <laughs> took the red eye out today. So we want to see, Sean, why do you, why do you pick Azra? Why do you remember? Why do you decide to attend your first meeting? Well, I'm, I'm pretty early on. I'm just a CA1, so I haven't got a ton of exposure to a ton of anesthesia and pain and all the subspecialties. But I really love my pain rotation at UW. It's a really well set up rotation. And uh, I'm not going to have a lot more pain experience until I'm a CA3, I think. So I kind of want to come to these meetings and get involved and learn more. I'm presenting, or I presented So uh, what did you poster. present about? That's what, that's what we want to hear about. Yeah, so I talked about uh, perioperative suboxone use just because it's kind of a... It's a subject in flux because traditionally a lot of providers have been very hesitant to continue suboxone in the perioperative period because so it can... Suboxone, again, is buprenorphine used for medically-assisted treatment of opiate use disorder or different drug disorder, so we're seeing it more and more with this opiate crisis. So tell us about your poster presentation. Yeah, so in the past, people have kind of decided to wean patients off in the week to five days before surgery, give them short-acting pain relief for acute and breakthrough pain, and then transition them back to buprenorphine and naloxone afterwards, um, after the surgery. Our patient, unfortunately, did not wean off of the uh, Suboxone like he was kind of advised to. Um, he also didn't wean off of his Plavix, so we couldn't give him any neuraxial analgesia for a cystectomy. So what do so, you do? So we just continued the Suboxone, and he had really great pain results. He actually refused all breakthrough additional pain medication like fentanyl PCA or anything, and he did well. Um, I kind of reviewed a lot of the literature. There's not really a consensus, but it seems like some of the receptor occupancy, receptor occupancy literature has talked about 12 milligrams of buprenorphine or less. Mm -hmm. You can kind of feel good about continuing that and giving an additional breakthrough. That's great. So have you guys seen a lot of uh, Raj or Amy? Have you guys seen a lot of Suboxone in your practice or Nabil? We'll wait and see. So what are you guys doing now for your long-acting Suboxone? Uh, so it's still kind of institution-dependent. At Harborview, about 8 to 12 milligrams, they'll say to continue it. But at UW, it's, it's attending-dependent as far as I've seen. Right. We don't have a protocol like at Michigan or other places. All right, so great. So, again, Michigan has the Michigan Open from Chad Brummett. Uh, thanks, Sean, for your presentation about the Suboxone. We'll catch up for you later. We have another guest coming on over here now. Hi, we got Dahlia. Dahlia, tell us where you're from. I'm from Chicago. Chicago. And what do you do in Chicago? Do you do chronic pain, acute pain, mm -hmm. OR, everything? I do everything. I do acute chronic pain and anesthesia and OB. That's a little bit of everything. Yep. Very good. So, um, do you have a clone? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't hear anything. Do you have a clone? How do you do all I that? I have a clone, yeah. Hands and feet. And Just run around everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit. You've been at this meeting. Um, you've gone to some of the sessions. Have you done workshops, too? Mm -hmm. or what, are, what workshop did you go to? Um, did a couple of workshops. Um, we had our ultrasound workshop for chronic pain, musculoskeletal. Um, we also today had one for ultrasound and radiofrequency and cold ablation. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about, so I am not a chronic pain physician, so I don't know much of that crazy stuff that you guys do in chronic pain, but 
radio frequency ablation I know about. This cooled ablation stuff is a little bit newer um, and is seeming, seeming to catch on some traction. And there's even discussion about using something very similar in acute pain mm -hmm. as well. Tell me a little bit about the cooled ablation. What were you guys doing with that? Where do you use that in the body? How so does that work? It's almost kind of the same concept as radio frequency ablation. It's just different thermal degrees. Okay. Um, the whole idea is to do a temporary interruption and in nerve transmission to provide a little bit more permanent relief. Okay. So which one is a longer duration, the cooled or the radio frequency? So to my knowledge, there aren't randomized controlled trials kind of comparing cooled versus conventional RF. Uh -huh. um, in general, when we talk to patients, you know, we can tell them it can be anywhere from three months to six months, where hopefully they'll get a little bit more prolonged relief. And is this something that you would repeat multiple times? Um, again, it's practitioner dependent, but yeah. yes, patients can have radio frequency ablation repeated, maybe on an annual basis. Same thing with the cooled? Same thing with the cold. Okay. So when the, in the workshop, what were you teaching people? Which parts of the body? What I was actually doing more of the intercostal. Intercostal. Um, okay. so, intercostal so this blocks like and post-orchotomy pain, mm -hmm. uh, post fracture pain. Even post-mastectomy pain. Patients okay. that are presenting with intercostal neuralgia. Patients with um, like a zoster's outbreak. Oh right. Have uh, herpetic zoster pain. Okay. Um, multiple indications. And these are done mm -hmm. under fluoro, correct? Um, no, they can be done on ultrasound. That oh yeah, you said you were doing an ultrasound today. workshop. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And um, uh, what do you think about the lectures? Have you been to any They've of the They've been sessions? amazing, yeah. They've Everybody, been some really yeah. good ones. So what, Very what good, you, a lot of audience anything surprising? Um, surprising, not necessarily. Okay. Yeah. So do you do a lot of, um, I know we were talking earlier about ketamine. Mm -hmm. um, do you guys do a lot of ketamine in your practice there in Chicago? Yes, yes. So in what and way do you guys, infusions. and where do you guys use the ketamine? So we're using it on the acute side and the chronic side. Um, okay. Our acute side, we were actually very fortunate to work with our pharmacy. When we initially started to the infusion therapies, they were always ICU-based, now they're floor-based. Same with us, yeah. Um, so it's great. It's a great adjunct for patients and, yeah. you know, also can help minimize opioid use as well. And Chronic, we do so the you're, for the acute pain, well. you're doing it, what, one or two days or something like that? Um, so it's very variable. Um, it can be anywhere from 24 up to 72 hours. There's okay. some patients that we have even on prolonged. And okay. as long as they're benefiting from it, um, kind of adjust according to the patient and their discharge planning. Now, for chronic pain, are you guys using it for headache, for depression, for something else? Mainly neuropathic. Neuropathic um, pain? Any type of neuropathic, central sensitization type pain, those are the ones that respond best and to And you're it. doing it as an outpatient? Outpatient. Um, again, it usually runs as a half-hour infusion, but of course, the before and after part and the monitoring makes it end up about a one-hour process. you feel like it provides a lasting relief, or is it kind of just a break for them? No, again, every patient is variable. Um, some patients have uh, prolonged response, and yeah. what I mean by prolonged response is they can have three to four weeks. Okay. A lot of our infusion-based therapies are done every six to eight weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. So, come on in. Come on in. All right. We got some more. Right, come on. Come on. Some more. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye, Facebook. Talia. Yeah. Come on in, guys. Come hey on. So stand over here. We'll uh, do quick introductions so you guys okay. can say who you are. Okay. So tell me your name. Tell me where you're from. Sure, sure. So my name is Vishal Varshney. I'm a pain fellow in Calgary, Canada. Excellent. Yeah, first time at here. Yeah, I'm Santosh Kodgi. I'm from Washington, D.C., practicing pain, PMNR graduate. Yeah. And how long have you been practicing pain? Almost uh, 13 years. 13 years. Yeah. And you're solely pain? 
Yeah, so only paint. No acute paint or anything like that. And this is Gary. I don't know if you guys have met Gary Schwartz before. He does paint up in New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice meeting you. So, so we've got the perspective of a first-time visitor. Have you been to Azra meetings before? Yes, I've been okay. for the last four years. And then, uh, and you're a paint fellow. So, um, tell tell me a little bit about what you thought about the meeting. Have you been to workshops, to yeah. lectures? What, what what did you? Uh, what struck you? Trying to get the trying to get the most out of it. So, so far, I've uh, I went to the uh, abdominal and pelvic um, procedures workshop. So learning about quadratus lumborum blocks, learning about the uh, different. Um, Is your ultrasound guided or? Yeah, uh, guided? so it was the fusion one, which was okay. fantastic. So, so not just for acute pain, this is for chronic pain patients, right. chronic low back pain, chronic pelvic pain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've been in QLs for. I'm an acute pain physician. I don't do yeah. any chronic pain, but I've been, we're starting to use QLs for some of our nephrectomies and some yeah. of our pelvic surgeries and stuff like oh, it's that. Huge. So now it's in chronic pain too. Huh? Yeah, yeah. So we're using it for a lot of the myofascial pain in the back. I think it's got yeah. potential for that. Um, and I think just as a good, it's just a good back block to know from the levels that it covers it just seems to have a lot of applicability so I was excited to get some hands-on practice with that um, for the lumbar spine we're talking yeah about yeah, right here. yeah exactly and then for the um, uh, the coccygeal blocks and things that was also fantastic on the uh, on the cadaver lab so that was who fantastic. were teaching those do you remember yeah yeah so uh, so actually Dr. Reda Tolba was uh, teaching me and he was my he's my paired mentor for the for oh, the good. meeting so that's really that was nice. really nice too yeah so. we were just uh, Gary was just talking to his mentee uh, Sean Reddy over here from the University of Washington oh yeah he was attending his first meeting like you he's a CA1 and he presented on buprenorphine and what do they do in the interop period from the post-op that's the session I'm going to right now so yeah, we're, we're going there after our good friend Carlos Pino from the University of Vermont, I think, is leading yeah. that session. But you're seeing more buprenorphine, also called Suboxone in the literature, is not only people are taking the sublingual tab, people have implantable device, they're taking it long-acting. So yeah. in the past, you were just able to stop it. Like, if they're coming with an implantable buprenorphine, you might not be able to stop it. So you have to learn how to treat it. Santos, anything you have uh, find good from the meeting so far? So, uh, like him, I have also gone for a few of the uh, fusion, thoracic and uh, lumbar, uh, cooled RF, also yeah. some of the um, cervical branches today, medial branch block, facet branch blocks. And also, I'm just getting it, even though I do that, sometimes it's just to, better get, to better. get a second, you know, <laughs> look at, see how people do the same thing in a different way. So I like to get that. And also, buprenorphine is one of the things I want to get a little bit more information. So I'm going for that for the next session. So do you guys see a lot of patients with buprenorphine? We do have uh, about, yeah, I would say about 5 to 10% of them are already in buprenorphine. Wow, and then yeah. you're in Calgary, so yeah. Canada is a little bit different bit with different. its medical process, but also seeing a lot of buprenorphine in their patients? Yeah, your, as a matter of fact, for opioid use disorder, yeah. we're putting a lot of patients, oh, sorry. Yeah, for opioid use disorder, we're putting a lot of patients on Suboxone. And ultimately, these patients will come to the OR for something. And so oh, I know. I'm on that yeah, Exactly. Yeah. So perioperative management, that, because I'm an anesthesiologist now doing the pain fellowship. And so yeah. this perioperative management of buprenorphine has been such a hot topic these days as to what we actually do for it and how we go about doing it. Oh, so yeah. we were just talking about Carlos, and he appears oh, like magic, it, right? It was like ringing in your ears. This is Carlos. Right. He knows so buprenorphine. Uh, buprenorphine, he heard us. Scoot the, over this way a little bit. Yeah. Director yeah. of pain, I believe, from the University yeah. of Vermont. Maybe he is actually going to be yeah. moderating the next session on buprenorphine and pain. So let's hear a couple of words on that. So, Carlos, specifically, the question I have for you is this, okay? I'm in the operating room, yeah. and I've got, um, uh, you know, we see a lot of trauma, car accidents, and stuff like that. Right. And I get a patient that comes in who's got an implantable, uh, you know, or, or a depot um, uh, uh, buprenorphine formulation on board. Okay. Okay. What do I do with them? 
Well, that's a great question. Nobody really knows exactly what to do with them. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the topics we're going to be discussing today at the interactive session. But, you know, we all have our own little preferences, right? Some people like to discontinue them. But in a trauma, somebody that comes in that's not elective, that's hard to do. So the only, your only option is to manage it with multimodal analgesia, regional anesthesia, obviously. I mean, you can't but stop it. You can't stop it, right. and then it doesn't make any sense to stop it at that point. Yeah. It takes 72 hours for it to clear the system. Yeah. Right. So you have to overcome it by the use of just stronger um, new agonists, new, basically, right? right? Uh, unfortunately, um, buprenorphine is a very, very strong new agonist. It's got a, a, a huge affinity. I think so I shared a slide from one of the other lectures where uh, they were talking about buprenorphine, I think it was yesterday, where it shows that buprenorphine is um, both potent at displacing uh, mu agonists, yes. but it's also so heavily bound that it doesn't want to leave. It doesn't, it's not displaced. So it's good for that purpose, right. but it's a pain in the butt when you got to deal with it later. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. I was talking to Gene Viscusi, who's our president-elect yep. for ASRA. He's going to be assuming the presidency in um, uh, April. And he told me that he actually takes patients who are on buprenorphine and uses buprenorphine as their analgesic mm -hmm. when they're coming in for an acute event. So yes, he yes. gives them additional buprenorphine. Yeah. Okay. And I can't speak to his dosing strategy on that, and he would have to talk about it. But we have access to that with our patches, so we have buprenorphine patches at various doses that we. Yeah, I think he gives. Well, I think he gives plain buprenorphine, so Subutex yeah. tablets, oh, yeah. and titrates that as part of his acute pain strategy, and, and this is for elective patients, so not just the ones that come in unexpectedly. He tells them, don't get off, I'm gonna give you additional as acute pain, and then use multimodals on top so, of that. So, yeah, you know that's not a bad strategy because the big ethical problem is that these people that are on, on Suboxone particularly, so buprenorphine and Naloxone, they've been battling with addiction, so by the time they have treatment, They've been struggling with this for years. So to take him off that medication for elective surgery that may be one night of pain, put him on their drug of choice, and then try to take well, basically him off leave, leave, him, leave him alone and say, look, the primary care doctor the uh, care can take care of it, that's not really ethical. So have you, Santosh, have you had to deal with that where somebody's a surgeon said, hey, this guy's going to surgery, get him off of his buprenorphine, and then uh, start him on opioids? Have you had to do that with some of your patients? Yeah, they do come sometimes, or as a trauma patients too, they call as a chronic pain concert. I do that. Yeah. So I tell them, just keep it as it is, but we put them on a bigger dose of uh, hydromorphone, like yeah. large doses. With a bigger bolus of PCA, yeah. because generally like 0.2, 0.3 is you know most. You have to overwhelm. You have to exactly. overwhelm that so binding. Exactly. So I tell them maybe 0 0.6, 0 0.8 to begin with. But what I'm and curious about what happens on the back end. Do you see them after that? Yeah, exactly. So they come back. So they get out of the acute, and then they come back to chronic pain. So then we can maybe continue the same suboxone, whatever they're on. So you have to get them back off of it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So How hard is that transition for them? It they withdraw a, again, right? It's, yeah, it is a little bit hard. We have to kind of give them a little bit more liberal opioids. That's what I do. I think there may be something which I'm going to learn today. But yeah. that has been our... Uh, it's, yeah. it's difficult once you get them back on opioids because then you have to let them go to cows too and withdraw again. And like, yeah, Just like yeah. alcoholism or tobacco, it's, it's, if it's a drug addiction it's and they really have a problem and, and they, it's took them so long to get off of the first time the second time when you're doing this it's it's just as difficult or more so because now you're introducing these drugs sometimes we don't have an option look we all practice pain regional anesthesia we try to do blocks but sometimes with the trauma sometimes as dr reddy said with his poster if they're on plavix you might not be able to put an epidural or a nerve block so it, it's one of the things that i would like to see 
in the future is us looking into IV uh, buprenorphine. Okay. Yeah. You know, it can be given as a PCA. Okay. I don't even know uh, if we have that in our, in our it, pharmacy. It, it is very cheap. It is very cheap. It's very cheap. So I've, I've checked with Marfa pharmacists. They can do it. But how do we but, use it? But getting it, that's right. So getting <laughs> protocols to getting use it. Getting it is one thing, but how do we use right, it? Right, getting protocols to use it, and to, yeah. especially in these patients, maybe a good a good idea to further further do what Dr. Vescuzzi is doing, basically. You know, it would be interesting if there's a consensus guideline document like we did with the ketamine ones yeah. that came out. Mm -hmm. If Azra did one on buprenorphine. I think it would be great. a good future Azra publication. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that take some of the information that came out of this meeting, and I think that maybe a group needs to be put together to do that. Hey, we're going to wind this down. Yeah. We've done this Thank for... You. Uh, uh, about a half hour or so. This is, um, uh, you know, again, another great meeting we're having down here in San Antonio. I hope next year you guys can join us. Um, we're going to remind you again, spring, April 11th through the 13th. Las Vegas, Las Caesars, Vegas Palace. Caesars Palace. Okay. Abstracts for the acute pain and regional anesthesia meeting. Their uh, abstract submission is open until January 7th. Make sure you come and uh, submit your abstracts. That's gonna be really valuable to kind of be able to present your research and science case reports there. And then um, it's gonna be an awesome meeting, so we hope you register and join us at that meeting. Thanks. So go to azra.com for all the details. Thank you guys for coming. Uh, very thanks nice so to meet you. Yeah, nice meeting you. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And thank you guys out there. Um, we're gonna have this video available on Facebook, so if you missed the beginning part of it or something like that, we can um, have you go to uh, Facebook and watch the video. We'll also post the uh, audio on uh, the podcast. We'll post uh, the audio on the podcast, the rap, so the RAPP podcast, and we'll yeah. see you guys in the spring in Las Vegas for uh, yeah, thank Raz you guys Gupta. For Thanks, we'll see you in the spring.